The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law and close advisor, faced questioning from congressional investigators for the first time today. In his prepared statement to the Senate Intelligence Committee, Kushner said, quote, I did not collude nor know of anyone else in the campaign who colluded with any foreign government. Kushner confirmed four contacts with Russians during his father-in-law's presidential campaign in the transition, but he described the encounters as unmemorable. We're going to go live in a few minutes to Jared Kushner as he speaks and makes a statement to the press outside the White House. Our guests are Renato Mariotti, partner at Thompson Coburn, and Andrew Wright, professor at Savannah Law School. Renato, let's start with the arrangement. Why is Kushner at his request not being questioned under oath? And what impact does that have on using what he said? Well, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for witnesses to be permitted to give an interview that's not in public uh, and that's not under oath. And the reason that uh, congressional committees do that is because it is a crime to lie to Congress regardless of whether you're under oath or not. And so Congress, um, I think, feels comfortable uh, with that, you know, with having an off-the-record interview for that reason. I think it has other advantages as well. I mean, when there's a public uh, interview that is, or excuse me, a public testimony that is under oath, uh, I, you know, members of the committee can be more focused on what the political um, uh, appearance of their questioning might be as opposed to actually getting the job done and, and answer, asking questions that uh, will generate the evidence that the committee needs going forward. Andrew, let's talk a bit about the substance of what Mr. Kushner said in at least the prepared statement um, that he gave to Congress. He describes a number of meetings that with various different people uh, with some contract to the Russian government. Is this the sort of, you know, the way he paints it, is, it the, is, is this the sort of activity one would expect from campaign officials to be having with a foreign government during the course of a presidential campaign? I think it's pretty clear that the Russian government was trying to curry favor and perhaps infiltrate the Trump campaign. I think um, plenty of um, folks on presidential campaigns, I've worked on one or two as well, um, find this um, number of meetings and the, and the nature of some of them to be abnormal. Um, certainly, you know, one would expect that during a transition period there would be some contacts with foreign governments um, trying to establish relations with the incoming president. But I do think that the nature of the contacts uh, is, is a little bit strange. And, you know, my colleagues in the Obama administration suggested that they certainly didn't have any uh, meetings that were analogous to these during uh, the campaigns in 2008 or 2012. Renato, one of the meetings that people have been talking about a lot is the one that Donald Trump Jr. and Paul Manafort mm. and Kushner attended um, with 
and the list keeps growing of who was there. So he completely downplayed his attendance at that meeting, said he didn't even know what it was about, uh, that he asked his assistant to get him out of there in an email. Did that work as far as what you saw? Well, first of all, as a starting point, I think it's important to note uh, that, you know, as you did, that he is trying to distance himself from that, uh, from what happened there, and more importantly, from knowing what the purpose of the meeting was and who he was meeting with. And I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One, it shows that his attorneys realize that it's problematic legally uh, to be at a meeting for the purpose of seeking aid from a foreign government. Um, but separate and apart from that, it also is an important thing for him because he needs to disclose his contacts with foreign governments and to the extent he thought that this was a representative of a foreign government that would need to be disclosed. Um, but was it effective? Uh, I thought, you know, it looked like he was trying to uh, provide um, excuses and, you know, uh, to get around what I think is a very obvious piece of evidence that he did know what was going to happen in that meeting, which is an email that was directed to him. I mean, he's saying he didn't read it and he didn't read it carefully. Um, and it's not an uncommon thing to to have happen when there's a criminal investigation is that people, um, you know, don't read, um, you know, will allege that they haven't read uh, emails that are problematic. I will say, obviously, Mr. Kushner is a, a wealthy uh, person and very busy and has a lot of responsibilities. And um, it, the burden would ultimately be on the government to prove that he knew what uh, the government is, is going to allege he knew when he took that meeting. Well, Andrew, let's also talk about um, another meeting that was discussed in his statement was a meeting he had with a, uh, a Russian banker named Sergei Gorkov, uh, who is the head of a state-owned Russian bank and allied with President Putin of Russia. Um, and according to Mr. Kushner's statement, they didn't talk about sanctions on Russia at all, and they also didn't talk about any loans or banking that uh, Mr. Kushner's private businesses had. And so, uh, you know, I I wonder how you know investigators are going to look at a statement like that about a with a you know about what he would have discussed with this banker. Yeah, well, first of all, it's kind of an extraordinary meeting. When I was reading um, his prepared statement, I, my eyes kind of jumped out of my head when I saw that it was the Russian ambassador who arranged that meeting, was quite insistent, according to Kushner, about having that, taking that meeting, and that the Russian banker was described as, um, you know, very close to President Putin. So, the, uh, you know, I'm not sure what work it does to suggest that, you know, that, that there was some sort of distance. Um, this was clearly a Russian government operation. He even brought him a painting of his you know family's hometown in Belarus uh, so it was quite coordinated um, so you know in in terms of his statement about no sanctions clearly the Russian government is quite interested in sanctions and so you know that would be one of those things that we'd have to test Kushner's credibility about whether that was done um, it's hard to imagine that it was just purely pleasantries if the ambassador was so insistent about having the meeting in the first place. The other point I'll just make is that Kushner now owns those statements for all future investigative activity. He's now said declaratively that there were no personal business dealings discussed and that there were no sanctions discussed. So he will have to stand behind that from now on. And also, Renato, this was not in his statement, but last week he filed an amended financial disclosure that included 77 items worth at least $10 million that were described as, quote, inadvertently omitted from a March filing. 
The disclosure mm -hmm. has been revised 39 times since its initial filing on March 9th. Can you make an excuse after it's the 39th time or at 37th or the 35th? <laughs> well, look, it is always it's evidence. So what the government has to prove is that the omissions were knowing and willful. OK, so in other words, that it was something that he did on purpose, uh, es essentially you know, showing that he had a, a, an intent to deceive or, you know, or intent to um, an intent to uh, mislead the government or hide what he was doing from the government as opposed to merely making a mistake or, or something like that. The, the, the number of times that you revise the form is certainly one piece of evidence that the government is going to use to show that he knowingly and willfully uh, made those omissions. Now, of course, what his camp is going to be saying and the defense would say is that he's a very sloppy person, a very disorganized person, a very busy person. He's got a big staff. Maybe they're sloppy. Maybe they're disorganized. Um, obviously, the number of omissions are an important piece of evidence. I think the other, you know, uh, you know, piece of evidence that you'd be looking at is, you know, what what were the omissions of, and what what was he omitting? And you know, if for example, some of the later revisions included meetings that were more and more problematic, that might go to suggest that those revisions were done with the intent to hide uh, from the government as opposed to merely uh, a, a, a clerical oversight. Well, speaking, Andrew, of you know how people are going to assess uh, the arguments and statements in here, and, and one of the things that I thought was interesting about the statement is that there's a sort of bold-faced statement about um, the, the thing that's gotten a lot of publicity, which is whether or not Mr. Kushner was trying to set up some secret back-channel communications uh, with, the, with the Russian government. And he says that the fact that he was trying to start a dialogue on that with the Russian government after Election Day should be viewed as strong evidence that he was not aware of one that existed before Election Day. So is that, um, you know, is that argument going to be persuasive to people? Well, one of the things to note is that Kushner doesn't have, and his lawyers don't have access to all the facts, because, and presumably the Intelligence Committee uh, will have access to the signals intelligence and other things that might lead to contradictions to that statement. We've been talking about Jared Kushner's testimony today, actually not testimony, but questioning from congressional investigators for the first time today, and um, that was not done under oath. We've been talking with Renato Mariotti, partner at Thompson Coburn, and Andrew Wright, professor at Savannah Law School. Andrew, we just heard a very, very short statement, no questions, from Jared Kushner. What was your reaction? I think uh, it was just a top-line blanket denial, and it'll give the media some sound and uh, camera video to run with today on the story. It'll be very interesting to see if there are any leaks or characterizations by members of the Senate Intelligence Committee about how that meeting went later in the day. So I look forward to seeing the story develop throughout the day as we get more information. Renato, he mentioned he'll be uh, talking to House investigators. How, how long do we expect that he's going to be questioned for? 
Well, I mean, I think he he may be questioned for hours by bo- by ultimately by both committees, and I doubt that this is going to be the last time that uh, Mr. Kushner is going to ask questions. So I thought Andy brought up a good point when he said that ultimately uh, Kushner is going to has locked himself into a certain set of facts here, and that's you know w- w- you know what why this this statement was so carefully worded. I, I think you know of all the people swirled up in this investigation, the person whose legal strategy I've been most impressed with has been Jared Kushner's because uh, he's stayed off Twitter and stayed off radio and TV shows and has uh, very careful, been very careful about what he says to the press, and it's generally always been through lawyers. This is the first time we've heard in his own words an account of what's happened, and ultimately he'll, he'll, be, he'll be held to that in future questioning. Andrew, how smart is it that he had a closed-door meeting, but he put out a statement, and now he makes a statement before before the cameras which reiterates what he said so he has his his message out there yeah i mean he's generally getting to drive the message today on game day um you know obviously the fact that he's doing the interview is going to dredge up all the previous reporting and that'll get re-recited in in the news cycles today but he's getting to put his spin on it. and that was really one of the chief benefits of negotiating to a private interview for him um, rather than a public hearing. But on the committee side, they get a lot of benefits out of this. They've now locked him into certain statements, and they haven't given up any of their prerogative to be able to bring him back under subpoena or voluntarily to testify in front of the committee um, and in front of the public. So I think both sides came away um, as a legal matter with some benefit to this, and Jared Kushner's media strategy is at the center from his side of that negotiation. Renato, um so just in terms of how this will proceed, you've got the special counsel, you've got the committees. Once they get these statements from Kushner and others under oath, where where does it go from here? So I mean, not under oath, I should say. Where does it go now? So I would expect that that Mueller's team will be, you know, has already been, you know, giving regular reports to Congress about what they're doing and coordinating with Congress. So that this way, there's no um, there's no way in which either of the investigations are undermining the other, so that they can work in concert. I know there have been public reports that have suggested just that, uh, and and frankly, from what I've seen too, you know, the congressional committees have been very deferential of Mueller and the investigation that he's doing. So what I would expect is that this interview before Congress would be a before congressional committee would be a piece of evidence that Mueller would use. Uh, I expect that at some point in the future Mueller will be uh, potentially uh, you know seeking interviews with many others uh, including Mr. Kushner and it'll be interesting to see if they agree to sit for an interview with him. He may try to compel testimony before a grand jury. Uh, and ultimately, that process can can take you know m- many months to unfold. Andrew, so now we're back to Mueller and the investigation, and that leads us to President Trump and some of his tweets over the weekend. The Washington Post reported last week that he's been discussing pardons for his aides and even for himself. On Saturday, he tweeted that, quote, while all agree the U.S. president has the complete power to pardon. So that's certainly an overstatement if the president includes himself in that pardon power. Is there any indication in the Constitution, in the case law, or anywhere that the president can pardon himself? 
Well, it's a slightly trickier question than I'd like it to be, to be quite honest. The Constitution clearly limits pardon power in cases of impeachment, and it clearly only applies to federal offenses. The question of whether the pardon... The president can pardon himself, um, I think, is something that the framers didn't probably devote a lot of time to because it was such an absurd notion. Um, The OLC, uh, Office of Legal Counsel of the Department of Justice, issued an opinion uh, several days before Nixon resigned indicating that it was not permissible or constitutional for the president to issue a pardon uh, for himself on the theory that no man can be a judge in his own case, which is a natural law theory. Others have argued that it would violate the structure of the Constitution. Some have made a textual argument that the idea of the president granting a pardon requires two parties to that transaction. Therefore, he can't be both the pardoner and the pardonee. I think that has the better side of the argument, but there are a lot of scholars on the other side and legal commentators who believe that there is no limitation. It would have to be expressed and that the president might have the power to do it. As a political matter or as a matter of stewardship of our government that's supposed to be a nation of laws rather than individual leaders, I think it would be quite absurd, and I would hope uh, that there would be such a violent political reaction um, that that would not be permitted by any sitting president. Renato, in about 30 seconds we have left. At what point might we see the president seriously considering pardons for other members of the administration beside himself? I think it would only be when they are in very serious legal jeopardy. So until one, – one thing you need to understand about pardons is that they extinguish your Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate yourself. So um, there – you know, it may be for right now it's in, the, it's in the president's interest to have certain people not be forced to testify about topics that might be problematic. As soon as he gives that, uh, that pardon, then, uh, then that person loses that right and would be held in contempt if they refuse to testify. So I expect him to do so at the last possible moment. Thank you both for being on Bloomberg Law. It's been a fascinating discussion. That's Renato Mariotti. He's a partner at Thompson Coburn and Andrew Wright, professor at Savannah Law School. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers and innovators leading the way from design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.